I'm going to turn now to our scripture lesson for this morning's sermon, which is a very short scripture lesson. It's just going to be First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. As I'll briefly consider in preparation for the Lord's Supper this morning, what Paul has to say in First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. This is God's word as he inspired Paul to write to Timothy as Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus. So here is the inspired and therefore the inerrant word of the living God. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's briefly pray. Lord, we do thank you for your written word. And we do ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we prepare this morning to observe the Lord's Supper after our sermon time, I uh, want to consider the atoning sacrifice of Christ, to which the sacrament actually points, uh, by examining Paul's gospel statement in 1 Timothy 1.15. I just read it, I'll read it to you again here. Uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We're going to break that down. What does it mean that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance? What does Paul mean when he says that Christ came into the world? What does he mean uh, that he says Christ came to save sinners? And what does Paul particularly mean when he says that he's the chief of sinners? So let's dig into 1 Timothy 1.15 using scripture to interpret scripture and answer these questions. First, Paul writes, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So what does he mean by that? Uh, this is a faithful saying. Literally, in the Greek, is faithful the word. Uh, the grammatical construction implies the verb to be. Those of you who study foreign languages probably have noticed that in a lot of foreign languages. There are contexts in which the verb to be is just implied, and so they don't even have to say it. And this is one of those cases here in Greek. Uh, so we can fairly render it in English as faithful is the word, or faithful is the statement. This is a declaration that's found in Paul's pastoral epistles. Uh, we see it in 1 Timothy 3.1 as well. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. And it's in 1 Timothy 4.9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Uh, scholars debate whether Paul's talking about the previous statement or the statement that follows uh, either he's saying that all should accept that godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of life that now is and of that which is to come, or he's saying uh, that it's foundational and should be accepted by all, that for this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Second Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Titus 3.8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. That's an application of the previous verses in which Paul teaches basics about salvation, regeneration, and justification by God's grace alone. So, so we can see how these words, this is a faithful saying, uh, call our attention to a foundational doctrine. That is a, a, something that is necessary for the understanding of the gospel and the functioning of the church. Faithful is the word, or faithful, or this is a faithful saying. That calls our attention to a very important doctrinal point. Of course, everything that we find in, in Scripture is important, and uh, particularly anything we find in a pastoral or in an in a, a apostolic epistle is going to be important and have a doctrinal point to it. But there are some things that are more foundational, perhaps, than others. And here Paul is saying, you especially need to remember this. Paul offers an extra emphasis in this context here with the words, and worthy of all acceptance. And we'll come back around later to find an important application that we can get from that statement. But what is the statement that is faithful? What is this foundational thing that we should pay attention to here? What's this key doctrinal point that Paul's trying to make? Well, it's really the rest of the verse, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Let's break that down into its component parts. What does Paul mean that Christ came into the world? We're probably all pretty confident that we know what Paul means by that, and your understanding is probably pretty accurate, so I'm not here to undermine what you know from the New Testament to be a fact. But let's pause and think about the implication of Paul's words here. We might metaphorically or figuratively talk about a child uh, being born as his or her coming into the world. Back in February, little Samuel came into the world, somebody might say. But Samuel was already in the world, wasn't he? He was in the womb, which was in the world, right? Uh, So we might say a child came into the world when he or she was conceived, but that's really coming into existence. When Paul says Christ came into the world, he's implying that he existed somewhere outside of the world in some way before his conception and then came into the world. That he came from outside the created order and entered into it. I say that because the the word he uses for world here is is cosmos. It's the, the word for the created order. For the universe. Christ came from outside of creation and into it. Well, there's only one being who exists outside of the created order, and that's the one who made it, the one who created it, the Lord God. John tells us about this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So there, of course, Paul's, or rather John's there, awkward sentence is awkward on purpose to, to back us into a corner so that we know that if he had been made, as some have taught in history, that, that God made the Son, and then the Son made everything else, 
Well, if he had been made, then this statement would be false. Because nothing that was made was not made by him. Right? Everything that was made was made by him. He was not made. Paul writes this in Colossians 1, 15-17, where he says of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now we should note that when Paul says he's the firstborn there, he's not saying again that he was created as if he's the firstborn of creation in that sense. But that, that's a title of preeminence. Think about Joseph, the son of Jacob. He was not Jacob's literal firstborn son, but he took preeminence over his brothers and was bestowed by Jacob. Uh, Jacob bestowed upon Joseph the position of the firstborn. Jesus is preeminent over all creation, is what Paul means by that. And notice that Paul says he was before all things. Well, only one being was before all things. That's God. In the beginning, nothing existed but God. The first verse of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, only God can be before all things. Also, think about when Paul in Acts 17, verse 28 says, that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, actually borrowing language from, from Greek philosophers there so, so that the Athenians would grasp what he was saying. Well, he's saying the same thing about Jesus there in Colossians 1.17. In him all things consist. It's another way of saying in him we live and move and have our being. So the statement, Christ Jesus came into the world, presupposes that he is God. We have one who is God who has become man. As John says in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came into the world. He took on a human nature as Jesus of Nazareth, who was the predicted and promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. Christ Jesus came into the world. So then what does Paul mean when he says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, we should we could spend a lot of time on such a topic. We won't have the time this morning that we could spend on that. I could that could be one or actually many sermons by itself. But just think of when I preached a while back. Those of you who were in the evening service, I preached through the Ten Commandments, and I could have preached on them for longer. But to put it briefly, Paul himself writes in Romans 3, 10 through 18 about human nature since our fall into sin. He quotes several Old Testament passages saying, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are, are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in Romans 3.23, he declares, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And then in Romans 6, 2, he writes, the wages of sin is death. So all have sinned, all have earned the wages of sin, which is death. We're guilty before God, each one of us. And if we are not to suffer the everlasting judgment of death, not just our bodies dying, but the, the Old Testament concept of death is a concept of separation. Yes, separation from the spirit, from the body, but also separation of the individual from God and his glorious presence. You know only God's wrath forever, what Revelation calls the second death. The only way that we can escape suffering that is if someone capable of paying for that sin does so. We've already come short of God's perfect standard, His holy standard, His glorious standard, the glory necessary to dwell in His glorious presence. So Jesus came into the world to deal with that, to save sinners. As Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He's going to die that we don't have to die eternally. Christ came into the world to save sinners. So next, what does Paul mean by saying that he is the chief of sinners then? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. We know, of course, the history recorded in Acts 8 and 9 of Paul's having led the first great persecution of the New Testament church. The scale of that persecution was actually minuscule compared to the persecution that Paul would die in himself under the Emperor Nero. And that persecution was pretty small compared to later persecutions under other, under other Roman emperors and persecutions that have existed since then, over the centuries. Was Paul really the chief, the foremost of sinners in that regard? Oh, we might speculate, well, his hatred of the church was such that he would have gladly led such a large persecution if he could have, if it had been in his power to do so. But I think we need to stop and actually reflect before we pass by this statement with a quick you know, acknowledgement, oh yeah, of course, Paul was uh, pretty horrible before he met Christ on the Damascus Road and was converted. Sure he was. But notice he does not say of whom I was the chief. I used to be a bad guy and now Jesus has made me something else. That's the kind of thing he talks about in Romans 7, of course. But he says of whom I am, present tense, the chief. What we see here is actually Paul engaging in self-examination. He's not just saying, I was pretty bad when I persecuted the church. He's saying, I'm still the chief of sinners. This is an ongoing, present examination. The more he grows in righteousness, the more he is aware of how unrighteous he actually is. And this is a case for every believer. The more we examine ourselves, the more we grow in righteousness, and the closer we become to being like Christ, the more we realize how far short we actually fall of being like Christ. So that in Romans 7, 21-24, he says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, 
the one who wills to do good. So he wills to do good, but there's an evil present with him in, within him, really. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to talk about Christ. Concluding then in Romans 8 verse 1, Rejoicing, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul acts perfect righteousness, but Christ's righteousness was applied to him. Paul gives us here then the example of honest self-examination. The kind of thing that we need to be engaging in before we come to the Lord's table, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11. Shortly I'll be reading 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to you, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So Paul tells us here to be self-examining. It isn't that we ought to say, oh yes, Paul is the chief of sinners. We each ought to be examining ourselves and saying, I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners. For I see how far short I fall of the glorious standard of my perfect Savior. Well, I said I would come back to the topic of the statement being worthy of all acceptance. Also, we'll look again at the first part of 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance. Now, as I said before, that just re-emphasizes that this is a faithful saying, but also that word all there in this context has a couple of aspects. One is to say that the whole statement is to be accepted. You can't take it piecemeal and like a salad bar and pick out the parts that you like and leave the rest. We must not partially or half-heartedly accept the truth of the statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and all the things that that implies and, and be self-examining to save sinners of whom I am the chief. The statement must be accepted totally, wholeheartedly. But another aspect of that word all would be to say that no one should reject the truth of this statement. It is worthy of being accepted, not just by those who are professing Christians now, but by everyone. Everyone should accept this. And are all the more guilty if we don't. It's not to be held by a few or by some or by most, but by all. So share this message with others. For all should accept it. You can't make them accept it. Again, it's a quote that I love from Martin Luther is that he told his students, it's reported, you can only get the gospel to their ears. Only the Holy Spirit can get it to their hearts. But you can get it to their ears. God will use you in bringing his people to himself as you get the gospel to their ears. Share the message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Share the message of the need of self-examination that each might acknowledge his guilt before the Lord and his need for a Savior and flee to Christ. Not from God, but to Him. Romans 10.14 How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? God is pleased to use His people to bring more 
to Christ as we proclaim the gospel. And then Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Share the truth of God's word with others. So just in conclusion here, recognize this is a true and faithful statement. Remember that Christ is God himself come to us. He came from outside the world into the world to save sinners. And that you are a sinner in need of of salvation. Need every human being apart from Christ as a sinner. Share that message that others may believe as well. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ did come to save sinners, that he is the true God come to us as a true human being. Grant that we might each examine ourselves honestly and repent of our sins, especially as we come to the Lord's table. Forgive us in Christ and strengthen us to share this message with all. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.